You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky, Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. What's up, guys? Hey, guys. Hey, guys. New week. New Another week. week. New no. week. Same shit. Another chance to shine. <laughs> <laughs> In what ways did you shine this week, Aaron, with your guests? Um, we had a lot. We shined heavily, actually. <laughs> you shined on each other? Yeah, we both brought each other up, I felt like. Um, actually, I, I think that was true. It was, um, he was, uh, I had on um, uh, Andrew Leland, who is a um, longtime, though no longer, uh, managing editor of The Believer, but he's still involved with that and various projects within and without of the McSweeney's empire. But uh, he's he's a, a fun guy to talk to, and I think he, he got me a little riled up. There was a little drinking, so the the podcast may have an overall slightly like less and less together tone as it goes on. But I hope you will find it entertaining. Those are my favorites. Yeah, those ones are good. Uh, we got a great sponsor this week. It's Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website. Uh, if you want a free trial plus 10% off your first purchase, you're going to want to go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LONGFORM12. I don't know if you guys have been looking for like a fast and easy way to send an email newsletter, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, I recommend Tiny Letter. It's from the good people at MailChimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. Here's Andrew and Aaron. Uh, welcome, Andrew Leland. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I uh, We've known each other for over a decade, although I think we've only spoken th- maybe three times. Yeah, it kind of takes the concept of on and off to its extreme. It was on and then just off in a really deep way. Well, and I, now it's back on. It's back on. I remember the first time I met you, we have a mutual friend, uh, Al Kitnick, mm-hmm. and I was staying at his um, his parents' ranch house in uh, Santa Barbara, and he said, uh, oh, wait, let's go see. We're going to go see my friend. He's a friend of mine in high school. He's he's Neil Simon's grandson. Oh, we're going there. That's cool. Let's go there. <laughs> we're going to go there straight away. Well, But I am such a – I had such an uncultured youth. I didn't I had no idea who Neil Simon was at that point in time. Um, so that meant nothing to I me. I had no idea who he was until I was about – you know, twenty six years, <laughs> and uh, we went and saw you, and you were staying in like a like a kind of like a like a little like cabana house out kind of outside, and uh, Al clearly had not told you that we were coming, and you were like 
asleep as we walked in the door and just came out like in a, a disheveled ball. <laughs> so that's that's my enduring impression of you. Wow, that that really sets the scene for our conversation. I think. In addition to appearing in this one anecdote from when I was nineteen years old, uh, you were the for a very long time the editor of the Believer or the managing editor of the Believer. Yeah, so I I I persist in being. Oh, you're an still, editor of the Believer. You were still an editor of the Believer, but I, I was I was managing editor for about eight years. For eight years, and I, I sort of know the very vague details of this, but I actually wonder if these stories that other people have told me are actually true. So, how did you become the managing editor of the Believer? I, <clears throat> shortly after you saw me disheveled, uh, you picked yourself up off the floor. Yeah, I, I attended Oberlin College in Northeast Ohio near Cleveland. And was a McSweeney's obsessive and was looking at that website every day. This was 2001. There was only seven websites at the time. Right. Yeah. And I, I would look at eBay and then I would go over to salon.com and suck.com. Suck.com. Wow. And, and then right to, do you ever read suck.com? I actually, I, I, had, I don't recall ever actually going to suck.com, but there's a fantastic story about the demise of suck.com, which is where most of my understanding of it comes from. Who wrote that story? Is it available on longform.org? I, I think it is. Yeah, I think I believe it's a Wired story, mm. but I'm not positive. Yeah, so so I, I'll look that up. Uh, Put it in the show notes. Then I would close. There were tabs then, so I'd have to close the entire browser That's window. Right. What year were tabs invented, would you say? I would say they, they rose in 04. 04. Uh, but this is this is 01, you got to remember. And I would go to McSweeney's.net, and one day <clears throat> there was an announcement that said that uh, McSweeney's was publishing William T. Volman's seven-volume treatise on violence, and they needed fact-checkers in their new Bay Area location. And my dad lives in the Bay Area. And so I applied for this internship and never heard back and then wrote another email, and they said, oh, yeah, sure. You know, it was, very, it was, it was the kind of thing where I was, like, wearing my finest finery, and then it turns out <laughs> that it was kind of like, oh, you sent two emails? Great. That, that's the test. Go for it. Yeah. So then I came, and that was the first McSweeney's at, um, Dave Eggers had just moved McSweeney's, you know, which was basically at that time himself yeah. from, I mean, you know, there, there were, there were people working on it in New York as well, but he moved to San Francisco, was opening 826 Valencia. And so that internship that summer, um, 2002 was fun because it felt like the ground, the proverbial ground floor. I, I, I was also a, a, a McSweeney's fan in that era and it, it, I don't know if it's sort of hard to remember now that it, it felt like a sort of a smaller cult at that point and, and it was just sort of um, reaching a, a national audience. Um, how, how did you first come across McSweeney's yourself? Well, I mean, it was, it felt like a small cult, but by that point, I think I had come across it when a heartbreaking work of staggering genius was excerpted in The New Yorker. Yeah. And then in the same issue, there was a Martin Scholler photograph of that originary McSweeney's staff on a roof in Brooklyn in the rain. Um, that, this is not, this is just answering your question. Uh, <laughs> I suddenly started to hate myself answering it. Uh, and I thought that that sounded interesting. And so then I picked up, I think it was issue two or three of McSweeney's. And that was around the time that I think I was making the transition from a high school reading life that was deep in Kurt Vonnegut and Douglas Adams. I mean, that's much earlier, I guess. But 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 David Foster Wallace and and the second essay in a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again was that essay about TV and fiction. Yeah. And 
I kind of read, or I at least looked up and read a lot of everything he mentioned in that essay, and it kind of blew the doors off the mother. And so then when I, when I you know, there was a David Foster Wallace story on the spine of issue three of McSweeney's, and it just, it just was kind of dovetailing in with this new sense I had of what, oh, and that same summer, I think the New Yorker published their, whatever the metric is, like 30 under 40 mm-hmm. issue that had George Saunders and David Foster Wallace and Jeffrey Eugenides. And, and so then I started to get excited about these things, McSweeney's internship, Ground floor, good time to be there. This was in San Francisco. San Francisco, eight two six Valencia, and uh, I went back to college after having done that internship. Oberlin yeah. has a winter term yeah. program, so I had January off and went back, did more internship and winter term program. And your was your mind ready to go go back to Oberlin after this mind blowing the second experience? internship? Yeah, after this. The yeah, it was awesome. I went back. Uh, I enrolled in classes, and then I got a call from Eli Horowitz, who was um, at the time, I guess, managing editor or, you know, editor of, of McSweeney's with, with, with Eggers, um, saying basically we're starting this monthly magazine called The Believer and we need a managing editor relatively immediately. We know that you would have to drop out of college to take the job, but also Dave is out of the country, so nothing can really happen for like two weeks, but just think about it. So then I immediately stopped attending all of my classes. I was going to say, two weeks when you're in college is like not even a full laundry cycle. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I just immediately reverted to that ball that you described at the beginning of our conversation. Yeah. Just drinking massive amounts of espresso and chain smoking and wandering around driving my room housemates crazy. And then thankfully the offer was real. They followed through with it and it was a very easy. That would be a killer prank. <laughs> well, it wouldn't have even been a prank, but he sort of he proposed it to me like we're not sure about this, so it wasn't a sure thing. But then, thankfully, it became a sure thing, and uh, it wasn't that difficult of a decision for me. I I always thought of it in terms of I can cryogenically freeze my college education and return anytime. This is the kind of job that I am nominally going to college to someday get. Yeah, um, and so I dropped out, and Dave told me to buy a book on Quark Express and read it on the plane. Quark Express was sort of pre-InDesign. Yeah, yeah uh, I remember industry Quark. Industry standard layout software, which I did, which is totally a useless thing to do to read a software manual without the software in front of you. It's like, you know, reading, uh, I'm not going to make a bad analogy. You know what it's like. Yeah. It's not useful. How did how did he represent what you were going to do, though? Like, what what was what was the job description? It was like in very grand and awesome terms and I didn't fully understand what it was really of course as because you can't until I got there but he said you know how often do new national magazines of this sort get launched you know it was like this is a momentous thing we're starting a new major literary organ and um, your salary will be commensurate with like entry level New York City publishing job, you know, like I think what we're offering you is fair. Yeah. And, uh, but then the corollary to that, or I don't know if it was a corollary, but, you know, the reality of that was that, and this remains true to this day, the believer has only one full time salary position, which is the managing editor. Yeah. Which means that there was Heidi Julevitz and Ed Park and Venda Levita, who are the three founding editors, um, and they all just received stipends essentially like monthly stipends and then 
you know, would, would, would acquire, would, would assign or, you know, edit mm-hmm. pieces and then send them to me or, you know, the managing editor in Microsoft Word format. And then that managing editor job is basically everything from that point to short of distribution. So it was just, it was a huge uh, education very quickly. What was, what what was, was working issue? on that it first horrible. issue like? I was like, it was trial by fire and it was deeply unpleasant and I felt like I was failing every 45 minutes and I was failing I was probably failing every three hours but felt like it was every 45 minutes what what did you feel like you were failing at or what were your greatest failures well I had to like email you know a big part of the job is emailing copy edited and fact checked pdfs of the pieces in progress to the authors to get their approval on queries and things like that yeah. and I would just sort of email an author a pdf without really knowing why I was doing it or what I was supposed to do and it was like you know when I got picked up from the airport by Dave Kneebone who was then doing like basically miscellaneous everything for McSweeney's, a lot of distribution stuff. Um, he now works for Tim and Eric, awesome show, great job, good job, great job. Anyway, he had the, the box and I looked at the table of contents because I, you know, I dropped out of college not knowing what the magazine looked like. All I got was this inspirational speech. Yeah. And I was like, good golly molly. It, you know, it was like Ben Marcus and Jonathan Lethem and Lydia Davis and Ann Carson. And, you know, it was just like, it was that kind of list of people that, I was starting to get turned on to uh, all just assembled in this one place. And I, it was, it was deeply exciting. And, you know, but then, then suddenly when I'm like, you know, Hey writer, I've admired since I began reading seriously, here's a PDF of your piece. I have no idea what I'm doing. Thanks. But you know, it was, it was just <laughs> that kind of feeling. And then, you know, it was just, the pressure was high. I mean, did people like when you're like emailing like William T. Volman, does he know that this is like a guy who just dropped out of Oberlin? How, how open were you about your own impending failure? Very open. Um, and you know, and and they that, that that sort of was a point of pride, I think, for the folks at McSweeney's. That you know, like when giving tours of the office, they would be like, "And here's the believer," right. pointing to my you know hovel. Like, were you like kind of a stunt hire? Like, <laughs> was like because this is such a good story that I that I can't sort of help but wonder whether like the story sort of goes both ways. It's like, yeah, we're starting a magazine. We got this kid to drop out of school. He's 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 we put him on a plane with a Quark Express. Uh, guidebook and look at it, he's rocking it now I mean it's definitely part of McSweeney's ethos I'm not the only person who has I maybe am one of the few who have actually dropped out to do it but many many young inexperienced but deeply enthusiastic people have been hired well it's interesting I think there's like in the like horrific um, job market that currently exists for people who who want to uh, write and, and be involved in this stuff there's this weird transaction that happens where the person who wants to become a writer finds that the job is like the Quark Express job and then you have these sort of like misaligned I want to be near-ish to writing but it's not the same thing as writing. I mean did you at this point were you harboring like hey I'll maybe I'll get a few stories in here I mean or were you just like going with the flow? I mean I have to this day never written for the believer and is that, I, a, is that a conscious choice or just just happen? They just reject me every month. <laughs> I'm like, Please, guys, no. I I've never. I've had a few times when I've thought about it. I've thought about stories, and it's not. I, I don't feel the the drive to do it the same way I feel the drive to like start a podcast or you know yeah. do the things that I've been doing. So all my uh, you know my yayas are being well tended to so you're in san francisco yeah you're doing um you start getting through a few issues without horribly horribly fucking up i horribly fucked up but the magazine managed to survive well like what was your worst fuck up 
So the believer's cover is printed three up, meaning there's a large piece of paper and it's printed three times on that large sheet of cover stock and then it gets cut and folded and bind it, bound. Um, and there's a long strip that sort of doesn't fit that we, for a while the subscriber cards were printed on. But even even with the subscriber cards, there was always this sort of extra spot. But so then we would like print art postcards and stuff on it. But if you don't print three cards in that space, it's a small space. So it's not really enough to print three of anything larger than the business card. So we did an art card, but I only did, I think, one or two there. Not doing this very basic math in my mind that if we didn't print the cards three up, then there wouldn't be one for every issue of the magazine. So I think issue two had an interview between Rachel Kushner and Laura Owens, the painter. And we included an art card of Laura Owens' painting. And maybe two-thirds of the magazine magazines contained the art card. That is not that big of a Oh, it is horrible. <laughs> and then, you know, it was embarrassing because then, I mean, probably we didn't even have to say anything, but then the next issue we had to say, because our managing editor is 12 years old, <laughs> only two-thirds of you got art cards. <laughs> you know, we're like, the article wouldn't end at the end, you know? You have to make, sh- you have to place little doodles and doodads and things so that the article actually ends at the very bottom right corner of the end. Sometimes those early issues, it ends freaking halfway up the page. <laughs> so, so amateur hour. So you're you're at um, you're working at the Believer, and I misspelled as- the word literary. <laughs> That's actually pretty bad. It's horrible. <laughs> so, at a certain point, I mean, I'm assuming that you were sort of playing catch up for a while, but. At- at a certain point, did you start? What, what point did you feel like you started sort of making a stamp on the magazine rather than the magazine stamping you? <laughs> um, well, I mean, it was more like at what point did the stamp that I was making on the magazine stop feeling like a mangling disfigurement of the magazine and actually just doing okay? I feel like I stopped disfiguring the magazine maybe after six months. Were you, I mean, was there pressure to say, this is a new magazine, we've got to get this out to a big audience? I mean, it's hard to remember. This is like the era before, like, everyone was like, share it on the social media. And and this was an era where, like, uh, spreading the word about a magazine involved, like, bookstores and and readings, um, not, like, upvoting things. But what, how did you, how did you think, how did you try to sort of introduce this new kind of a new concept of a magazine to to a national audience the believer had the benefit of being published by mcsweeney's which already had this as you call it like a cult follow you know i had it had an audience already built in so there was sort of some basic event to that as opposed to just like some person who seems smart is starting a magazine it was like it was already that was already an event and then heidi julevitz's essay in issue one about it's called uh it was it had a sort of long exhortative title, Read Hard, um, about the book reviewing culture sort of function as a manifesto uh, for the magazine, in the, especially in the first few years. Um, and that got a lot of attention, a lot of backlash, a lot of – it started a conversation. Yeah. So those those two things were huge advantages right out of the gate. You know, and then in terms of maintaining that, um, you know, th- th- and then those two things just are sort of – there's nothing to maintain there. Just th- those were excellent boons. Um also, the believer had the advantage of, and this is just a design issue, but having the production values high and not printing it, like printing it. Um, oh man, it's been a while since I've been managing it. I'm forgetting the lingo, but the uh, perfect bound, as opposed to, like you know, like the New Yorker or Harper's being, I think it's called saddle stitch, where it's just the staples in the side, whereas the yep. believer is is bound like a book. And as a result, these independent bookstores, you know, most most newsstands, as you know, have 
you know, if they don't sell the, the unsold copies, they tear the copy off, the front cover off, and then either I don't, they, either they pulp the rest or they send it back. Um, whereas the believer at these independent bookstores, where you have whole copy returns, we would get the whole issue back, or even better, to this day, you know, I'll see in, in bookstores they'll have like nine months of the magazine on the shelf in a cool handmade display. You know, so things like that are huge that a lot of other magazines didn't benefit from. Hey, it's your host, Aaron Lammer, with a quick word from our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website. Uh, I used to make websites for people for their little projects, etc., and I don't do that anymore because I run a different website called Longform. Uh, but when I did, um, people always wanted a simple solution, and now I've found one, and that is Squarespace. They have excellent designs. They've got great customer support, so you can get it off the ground quickly with their help. And best of all, it's responsive, so it's going to work on every device, iPad, iPhone, etc., right out of the gate. Um, you can get a free trial, and if you do decide to upgrade, it's only 8 bucks a month and includes a free domain name. Plus, if you use the offer code LONGFORM12, you'll get 10% off and support this show. So thank you, Squarespace. I really encourage you to check out their service. Here I am back with Andrew Leland. So in the early days, like what, what was the circulation of, the, of that first year? Um, I think that we averaged around 30,000 a month. I mean, that was the peak. I, that's a, I mean, that's a high... There's a lot of people who would be very, very happy to to build up to thirty thousand over over a period of years. That's that's a pretty significant network. Was there, you know, was there an urge to say, hey, could we could we take on the New Yorker? Can we go super big here? Or like, what? How 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 did the sort of ambition of the magazine play out? Um, it was always frustrating to me because I think having one full time paid employee you're building in a ceiling there. And that's sort of what I, I wrestled with that a lot over those eight years that I did that job. Yeah. Where, you know, as you were asking me about my stamp or, you know, the feeling of disfigurement, what happened was I got faster and faster at the kind of basic stuff of, you know, getting the magazine copy edited and fact-checked and laid out and you, to press. You finally read that Quark manual. The, yeah, the tricky Appendix 3 about packaging for output, whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I figured that out. And then that opened me up to, like, you know, maybe spend a little more time with the headlines or, you know, think about a new way to, you know, like a new section of the magazine or, you know, punching up a set, you know, and it, but all this miscellaneous stuff kind of ended up in my plate. And then at a certain point, we were doing a music issue and it was kind of like, maybe we get a big, you know, sneaker company to sponsor a music festival. And then at a certain point, I was like, I do not have bandwidth to do that. That's what we need to do in order to leap to the next level and maybe now there is more bandwidth but at the time right maybe like four years ago or five years ago that's when i kind of hit a ceiling and i was like really i'm just now the magazine is done i'm sending it to press and gonna go drink a racer five well i'm interested i mean you you said that it was sort of this higher production value and it's always looked like an expensive magazine um and it is an expensive magazine and so like why the decision to, to to have one full-time employee and fancy printing rather than, say, two full-time employees and newsprint? Because that's a part of, that's always been a part of the identity and the value of the magazine. I mean, I think that um, that's a conscious decision, and I think it 
it's a part of McSweeney's ethos and it's a part of the believer's ethos. And I don't, I don't think it's something that we would ever sacrifice. Interesting. And how did that play out in terms of um, paying writers and sort of like your ability to get great material for the magazine? I mean, we always wanted to pay. I mean, I think, I mean, I wasn't around for those early conversations, but I think that paying, you know, obviously can't compete with a Condé Nast publication remotely. But, you know, there was always a sense that nobody's writing for free. Um, Over the years, it began to grate a little bit having to apologize for our rates. You know, but our rates are are okay. And I know a lot of places that, you know, I think we do better than a lot of small magazines uh, in terms of paying writers. You know, but I still think it's not enough. And, you know, and the really, the, the, the thing that I would really like, other than paying the writers more and, you know, expanding the visibility of the magazine is just having all the people who work on the magazine not on a full-time basis to be able to be salaried. You know, I mean, it's insane how long Heidi Julevitz has been working on that magazine as kind of a hobby. Right. Did you, I mean, how conscious were you of the sort of trends in other magazines and the fact that you were, some of these writers were, were placing in other places? Were you competing for stories? Well, you know, I, so so just to fill in a little of my role at the magazine story, I... Pouring another drink. By all means, yeah. I'm almost ready to switch to whiskey. I'm okay. still just finishing this. Just let me know. Soy cappuccino. Well, so I, as managing editor, I wasn't assigning stories. So that wasn't uh, really on my radar. I was like, I got this steady drip from Ed Park and Honey Julevitz of edited pieces by great writers. And it was my job to, to put it into the the package basically, you know, to, to, to assign the art for it and uh, all that. But now, um, when Ned Park left, um, I had, I had sort of quit preemptively to get married and have a baby and move to Missouri. But so anyway, then when Ed Park left, I took over his old job. So that, okay. that's what I'm still doing now as sort of, you know, the, what is uh, that job? That what, is, what is that have? articles editor? So what is, what do you look for in an essay? What, what, um, what is, what is the believer style? Well, I was, I brought it up speaking to your question about money and and other and competition because i found very quickly that you know what i would love to look for is these sort of long form reported pieces that are deeply informed by either a literary imagination or an engagement with literature itself yeah. and it's hard to do when you know when you're asking somebody to take to do so much work and invest sink so much time for $400 yeah, uh, it happens, and um, and that and that competition for that sort of off the grid four hundred dollar story in between your two better paid stories seems like it's heated up a little bit. Like whereas I always thought of wow, the Believer is a great outlet for that story that's like incredible, but like who who else is going to publish this? There's now more places, mostly online, that would publish it and are sort of in your financial range. What what are those? And by out of curiosity, uh, I mean I th- I'm trying to think of uh, what sort of uh, parallel places. I mean, you see places like the All publishes long stuff. Um, you know, this is like technology, but like The Verge. There are these these there are these emerging publications that have never had a print incarnation, um, but are pushing. It. Buzzfeed is doing features now. You know, so I think when I think about those places, and I sort of have a general grid of what people pay. Let's say. Um, the under $1,000 market. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more players in the under $1,000 market than there were in 2003. Yeah. I mean, I think that since the beginning, you know, it, it was a remarkable. That was one thing I did. You know, I did kind of sit at the 
spout of the just letters at believermag.com address for for eight years and so seeing just how how quickly after that first issue hit that people started sending in these fully formed believer stories yeah and so there is that kind of self-selecting writer who you know really savvy writer who reads the magazine knows exactly what it's about and 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 sends us a believer story uh so now that you're now that you're on the article side, what percentage of these stories are coming in sort of fully formed versus like a two sentence pitch? Well, it, you know, we can't really us over assign like like a lot of bigger magazines do. So oftentimes I'll get a really great pitch, whether whether it's two sentences or two paragraphs or even just like a third of a draft. And I'll say, I love this and you should write it, but I can't you know, assign it. Unless it's a writer that we've been working with for a while, then I can as- sometimes assign stuff. But we, we can't really afford to pay kill fees like Harper's can. Um, you know, I think ideally that's a good way to get a lot of good stuff is to over-assign and then kind of pick and choose from there. But we have to be a little scrappier. And so um, pitches are, I, I have to approach pitches that way. And so usually it'll be this kind of good faith thing where I'll tell a writer, who has a pitch I like, you know, I will read this as many times as you can stomach it or, you know, and, and I will do everything I can to make this work. But I, you know, I don't know, having never worked with you before or having, you know, have being at this stage, I don't know if I can, if we can afford a kill fee. So, and that feels shitty, but also it's kind of the best I can do. It's honest. I mean, what percentage of the stories that you publish are someone who you already know about, you've already worked with versus sort of first timer believer virgins? I would say maybe half and half. Yeah, Sci- unscientifically pulled out of a hat. I think it's roughly half. When you're when you encounter someone who you're not familiar with, you've never worked with before. What 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 gets your attention? What 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 is the kind of person you would want to want to be working with? I mean, obviously, ideally, I'm not looking at the person at all, and it's just it's just what, just the they're, work. what they're sending. Yeah, but there are social or interpersonal warning signs as well as positive aspects that might might Im- unconsciously influence me or even consciously influence me. For example, if I'm like, this is a cool story, but I am getting every indication that this person's not going to change a word and is going to make my life a living hell, you know, I might be less inclined. Although I think a good editor has a strong stomach for crazy assholes because <laughs> often crazy assholes are really brilliant, great writers. How have you developed, I mean, going from the sort of quark world to the like periods and semicolons world like uh, how have you developed as an actual editor I think that spending so long doing the managing editor job and I maybe even before I maybe this would be true of my style even if I hadn't done that for eight years but I'm I really have to push myself off the sentence level I'm like a big sentence nerd and I I loved I actually like I think I enjoyed that doing that job for so long because I do relish the living in sentences like that the way that if you're I mean because that job was a lot of, could a lot of titles rolled into one but copy chief was definitely one of them and you know I got to nerd out with semicolons a lot and then now when I'm editing a piece one of the parts of this sort of new education or you know the kind of way I've had to change my approach to editing is definitely forcing myself to stay up at at a couple miles above sea level for longer and then it's kind of like a relief or it's a pleasure to finally be like okay it's finally at the place now where we can drill the fuck into this thing and yeah. you know, not that badly. And I don't do that with everything, but I, I, I do. I get the most pleasure out of dealing with um, the way a sentence works. I've had to do the most 
learning and self-flagellating in terms of thinking about how a larger narrative or a larger argument is constructed over the course of hundreds of, or thousands of words. I'm, I'm intrigued by your the fact that you are sort of a, a, a sentence-level nerd because um, in preparing for this podcast, I sort of went and checked out some of the other... You've done some independent um, sort of art projects. You have a blog. You have a... Um, beyond the organist, you have sort of an experimental podcast. And it's like... Um, it's some out shit. Some, yeah. It's some, uh, some free literary jazz. Yeah, uh, and I, and I actually, I really like it, but it, it wasn't something that I expected to come out of a person who is like a, a semicolon guy. H- how did you get in? I mean, how have you gotten into these projects? The, the extracurricular. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that what is your history with extracurricular stuff? Um, when I was working at the believer under a lot of pressure and just like office, you know, even though it was, my dream job was also an office job and it had its stresses and it's like San Francisco is secretly intense, not even secretly, but yeah, secretly intense and just, you know, and just, uh, working, working seven days a week is intense. And, uh, so I would, I had, I started a blog where I just sort of, like you say, I would, I would feel, I would, I would, I would, it would be my chance to transgress in the ways that I wasn't allowed to transgress because that's, that's the one interesting thing, I guess, about a job that you care about is that, um, you know, it was literary and I was getting, like I said, a lot of my literary yayas out by editing writers I admired and thinking, uh, intensively about the pieces that we were publishing and, you know, and, 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 and being deeply engaged in criticism and, and literary journalism that I cared about, but that's, there's still something left over. And, and so that's, that's, I guess I would funnel that stuff into these extracurricular projects that would just be, you know. Riffin. It was a lot of riffin. Just yeah. a lot of riffin. And I, you know, I think that another. T- this may answer your question earlier about my lack of ambition to publish uh, or you know write criticism or write stuff for the believer. Is that's part of my interest? Is the sort of more performative or more deranged or more out, as you say, um, pursuit that the believer, for all of its championing of the avant-garde, doesn't necessarily scratch interesting so after you made this decision to take off uh from the believer i mean what are the career options for a um former literary editor the oakland museum of california got a mega grant to do a series of contemporary art projects and i had worked on a book while i was at the believer with um chronicle books and the oakland museum and the artist mark dion a sort of hybrid it was like a cat it was sort of like a catalog for the show that they were doing but it was also kind of a monograph and also kind of like an art project in itself and i worked with the curator at that museum doing that and then sort of timing just like more dumb luck style they were doing this project um right after i left and so that was like a nice halftime thing that kind of sustained me until my wife got a job at the University of Missouri and we moved to Columbia where coming from San Francisco it was amazing because we you know everything was like a third of the price and what's what's Columbia like as a, as a town it's college town USA go yeah. Tigers uh, it's equidistant between middle estate between St. Louis and Kansas City um, great journalism school um, so I, 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 I finished my BA actually when I got there too because I was like you're like you're kind of like a professional athlete 
you're like, yeah, you know, I declared after junior year, but now that I'm retired and going back to, to finish up the BA. Do professional athletes do that a lot after they've... <laughs> yeah, a lot, of time, a lot of times a guy, you retire, retire when you're like 34, 35, go back and finish that college degree, get involved and in, get that communications degree done, get on the air. Yeah, well, the, here we are. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I finished my BA and then immediately taught a wacky, like the zaniest section of intermediate writing ever ever held at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Oh, so what, like, um, so you, you were able to turn a BA into a, a teaching position? I immediately be adjuncted for one semester, and then right after that was when I started full-time again at McSweeney's remote, remotely. What was teaching like? A tremendously fun. I just sort of converted all of my zany stand-up comedy ambitions into this uh, pedagogical funnel. <clears throat> you know, we would read like Joseph Mitchell. Or... I, I had a feeling that you were doing some interesting stuff there because you sent me an email that said, I'm teaching a journalism class. Um, do you want to appear by Skype? And I was like, sure. And you're like, up, oh, already full up. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> he sent this to a lot of people. There's, there's going to be a lot of guests in this class. It was a star-studded affair. So it was basically who, like Hollywood Squares. Who appeared by Skype at It was this like class. Hollywood Squares, but with Skype. And yeah. basically, like every person who's ever been on your podcast, but just like in a, their own little Skype window. Talking who who were some who were some memorable um, Skype Skype ins? Uh, Lauren Bands was hysterical. There was a Gideon Lewis Krauss, Rachel Aviv tag team. Wow, where they sort of like one would one of them would go get a drink of water, and the other one would just drop knowledge. All of my the teacher evaluations said. Great class, too many Skypes. I th- I really went overboard. I was just like, this class is going to teach itself via Skype. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is when you sent the Skype email, I was picturing that um, you would like co- you were coming in like hungover and like opening a laptop and then just sitting in the back and like someone would talk to the kids every day. It was more. That's exactly what happened, except replace the hangover with uh, you know baby three hangover. month old baby having not slept. Yeah. What so? Where do you go from here? I mean, what 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 interests you in in an ongoing way? Probably just get a gender reassignment. <laughs> you know what else is left for me? You know, yeah. I need to be a woman now. Well, no, I know a lot of writers say, "Well, I've always wanted to write a you know, I've only written features. I want to write a book, or I've only written like books that were extensions of my feature. I want to write a whole book where I just write a book." Um, what do you want to do with yourself? You're so sweet to ask me that. <laughs> uh, I am really having fun doing the organist, our podcast. Oh, we haven't even talked about that. So l- tell Fuck me about you. this. Tell me about this podcast, the organist. So you know KCRW listeners, In Los Angeles. They're the great LA radio station, kind of NPR affiliate, but they do a lot of original programming. When I was in high school in Southern California. Yeah. I listened to Joe Frank every For week. people who are in New York, I would say it's the WMFU of- FMU. Of L- yeah, FMU. Oh, God, yeah, but it's, it's a little bit like if FMU had a crazy one-night stand with NYC. Yes. It would yes. be the- And then like, move to California. Yeah. That would be KCRW. It's a fantastic radio station. So how did that come about? They the had organist? been flirting with McSweeney's for years, and then for various reasons, nothing ever really happened. And then when I was in Missouri- I had enough time to kind of, well, actually, I was doing, when I was in my sort of lost in the desert brief bathrobe phase before I started working full-time again, and I was a student at the University of Missouri finishing my undergraduate career, I was doing, I, I decided to return to college radio, which was- I, I need to pause you for a second there. What classes did you take when you were an undergraduate? I took ancient Greek philosophy. 
Okay. I took intermediate Spanish. Was there a temptation to take a writing class and just kind of like a? I had to take for my English major. I was missing out on. I had to take one theater-related English class, so I took a Shakespeare class with one of my wife's colleagues, who was very awkward because I was a participation grade, and I felt (laughs) like this. I just couldn't. You know, I like had to do good on my participation grade. Yeah. Because I just felt like I needed to fucking ace this class. So I just raised my hand and, you know, I would like had saw her at the wine bar the, the night before and she would be like, Andrew, yes. And I would say, <laughs> I think Titus Andronicus, some stupid observation that I have. Yeah. But, you know. So, okay. So I'm sorry. I, st- I stopped you on the organist trip there. So they wanted you to do the show. Yeah. But so I was, yeah, whatever. I was doing college radio and then I think they kind of were like, oh yeah, Andrew is like in Missouri wearing a bathrobe. Yeah. And maybe. He would do this. He could do this. And so I, so we developed the shit out of it and, uh. It's amazing because we can KCRW is extremely generous and it's a it's like we can pay our contributors so which means that we can get well we can pay our contributors we can get really great material and it's been an amazingly fun a lot and we've been learning a lot about how to make you know at, at first I think we were a little bit we underestimated the challenge of converting what we do with the believer to an audio so well I'm interested in a few things about the organist so th- for people who haven't listened to the organist it's I would describe it as sort of a literary variety show. Is that is that fair? Yeah. I mean, it really is, I think, pretty close to a, not an audio version in, in the sense that we're like taking believer stories and making them into organist stories, yeah. but in terms of it being a magazine format literary yeah. show that doesn't, isn't limited to literature. I'm interested in a few of the choices. One is that you include fiction in it, which is not the, there's sort of a split between McSweeney's and the believer. So is is this sort of supposed to be a marriage of the two? Yeah, I mean, I think that even though it is nominally the Believer podcast, the reason I think one of the main reasons the Believer avoids fiction is that the McSweeney's Quarterly exists, and that's right. what they do, and they do it brilliantly. So there's no, it would make sense for us to do that. Whereas the, that doesn't, there's no like McSweeney's Radio Hour that we're competing right. with, so we might as well embrace that. And also, I think radio really lends itself to that form, and 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 primarily, I think that. A lot of the original idea, it just seemed easy to be a really crappy This American Life knockoff. So we tried really hard to think of a way to distinguish ourselves and to make something that doesn't already exist out there. And then the radio drama aspect of it felt like a way to do that. What are the challenges of translating that tone to audio? I was listening to the most recent uh, episode, and you have an um, oral history of uh, the artist Mike Kelly, who died uh, died in the last couple of years. It's interesting to me. I'm not sure actually I'd ever heard an audio oral history, and it's quite different when you hear the tone of people's voices in describing something. There is there is a real loss in the um, in the printed word um, in terms of people's tone, and I mean you can pick up a lot about what a what a person is by how they talk. At the same time, when you think about translating sort of a reported piece, there's something lost when you have to hear a writer's tone. So what what have you what have you tweaked from that first episode to, to now to get it to get it in shape? I think that that you're exactly right. That's the that's the, the, the that writers, you know, we, we avoid we're hell bent on avoiding at all costs people reading things off of a page. Sometimes it's unavoidable, but even if you have to put together a piece where you need the reporter or the producer to introduce it, and they have to kind of say, "Aaron Lammer is you know lives in Brooklyn." If you can somehow get them in conversation and just tell you that Aaron Lammer lives in Brooklyn, rather than have that piece of paper and say, 
Aaron Lammer lives in Brooklyn. You know, and there's just that t- that tone that is sort of drives me crazy to hear on on the radio. But that's but the, you know, and then but then if you go too far the other direction, it's the super artificial conversation that you hear every morning on NPR, where they're like, "Now hang on, hang on a second. You know, yeah. I didn't. Isn't there another aspect of this? Well, yes, James, there is. You know, and that so they're sort of finding the middle road between not reading off the page, but not just like the fake. And you know, even the greats such as Radiolab, sometimes those conversations, you're like, you know, there's a talking point, and you know, and, and it's unavoidable. It's the same thing. Like, you can't make a a magazine that has long form writing that doesn't in some way resemble what's out there already. You know, you can right. you can improve upon it and you can mess with it, but you know, I had to realize that the believer is not ray gun, you know, like that the text is, is is formally arranged on the page and there are radio conventions that we have to work within. We can still try to push them and play with them and we have a lot of freedom to do that. And the KCRW is amazing for giving us the freedom to do that. In the show notes I'm gonna link to a page from Ray Gun and crack some young people up. Yeah. Raygun. They were, you know, typography in Raygun was like there would be. It's they, like grunge as visual. The guy famously, I forget his name, the designer, but he, there was an article that he didn't like that they were running and he just said it in Zap dingbats. So, you know, like the, like the symbols font. So the entire article was as it was written, but it was just entirely in dingbats. They would do things like that. I'm interested. Um, the organist and also by extension, I think the believer relies on sort of a mix of established writers and celebrities. And I say celebrities, they're not um, TMZ celebrities, but so the last issue, the last uh, episode of The the Organist had Jesse Eisenberg on, uh, Catherine Keener was on it. It's a sort of a star side cast. So my first question is, uh, how do you get all these people to come on your podcast? That's not, I'm asking for a friend. Um, My second question is, what what role does sort of that play, that sort of mix of pro and interesting? Well, I think that that mix you're describing of kind of in the, in one episode of The Organist or in one issue of The Believer having, you know, Hollywood actors next to um, continental philosophers or, you know, articles about obscure 18th century literature next to pieces about amusement parks, um, that mix is part of what, what the magazine and the podcast, what 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 it it makes up our identity. I mean, that's sort of what we do, and I think what we do well. And you know, we don't we don't want to be obscurantist. You know, we're not funded by a university. We have to reach people, and we are a magazine, a culture magazine, and it's just it's culture high and low, and that comes across in the content and sort of the focus of the magazine as well as the mode of sort of the writing. I think you know, both in terms of covering high and low culture, but also engaging with it. Um, in a in a way that's both accessible but also rigorous, um, and we try to do that with the podcast. So I think that's that's what accounts for both Jesse Eisenberg and Mike Kelly. And you know, Mike Kelly is a good example because he kind of em, em, embodied that distinction in his own work. He was sort of operating on on all those levels, um, which is what made him a great subject. Well, one thing I'm sort of interested in is you're now commissioning both audio and uh, and text pieces. And you described when you when you bring in someone new for text pieces, like, hey, I'm going to shit on this like 15 times and you can keep coming back and we might publish it. We'll see. And there's this sort of infinite malleability to text where you can just keep beating it back into clay and see if you get something. 
Um, when someone brings in an audio piece, you don't have the same, you're kind of like working with what you got. I mean, you can send people back out to do it again, but some of these pieces I would imagine are kind of, you either got it or you don't got it. So how different is it commissioning audio pieces versus uh, pieces for the magazine? I mean, it, it, it really ranges. I think that you might be wrong about that audio doesn't have infinite malleability. I think some producers can come back at you with a new edit that totally turns it around. And some producers have hours. You know, I think good producers will have hours and hours of tape that they can say, all right, they didn't like the the stuff about the gazebo, but maybe I'll try this river stuff out on them. And, you yeah. know, what do you know? There's a new edit. I think it's tough when, you know, I, I think that's just something that, that good radio producers have to learn. So I think that it's a different mode, but that there are kind of parallels there. And, and there, okay. I think you're right that it's a lot easier to cut a comma at the last minute than, you know, I have to like go back and re-record myself saying, but also, because yeah. like the original cut didn't have me saying, but also, and we really need but also there, you know, but that's, that's, that's kind of superficial. But yeah, so I think that even though it's not the same approach, they are, they are pretty parallel in a lot of ways. Some of these magazines that have come out in the wake of stuff like The Believer in the last few years have a very sort of omnivorous multimedia approach where um, there could be the same story reported both as a video and an article and stuff like that. Do you do you see that kind of do you see a future like that for for the the work you're doing? Well, I don't want to talk about Walfin because it's sad. But there was what, what happened to Walfin? Walfin, I think. I don't really know the official line, but I think that Walfin. No I've been longer, saying Holpin. Yeah, for lots, like lots years. of people say Holpin. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Walfin, I mean, I know Walfin does not exist anymore. Okay. Uh, and I think I am not equipped to speak officially about it. Okay. But I could try for no reason and then just <laughs> beg you to edit it out later. Okay. We're, we're open to that. Um, I mean, I think that Walfin, even though books and radio shows or and magazines all struggle with the internet, you know, I think the new MacBook Airs are being released without a DVD player at all. Yeah. Uh, and I, so I think like the, the idea of a DVD magazine, there isn't the same sort of You can, can't hard... just be like a big file though? What do you mean a big file? I mean, it just seems like it's even easier to distribute like a video product like that. It's like you just download it. But not with the McSweeney's uh, approach. Okay. I think that like McSweeney's, you know, you have this audience that will always love magazines. And I don't think you have the same, this is just, I'm just, this is I'm just Andrew pulling this out of my brains. It's but not official. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that you don't have the same love affair with the DVD technology and, you know, or with like the USB drive embedded in a little monkey paw that you can, yeah. you know, sever and mail out to people. So, but isn't that so, pre- I mean, to me, that's so precious. Like who cares? Well, I don't know. I, I, I would, but I would pay, like I, Okay, so both of the dudes who edited Walfin no, now are still working. They still are alive, and they're right. still making stuff. And they're still and they're they're gonna do what what Walfin was, and they're gonna right. do it for the internet somewhere else. They're in like this little hibernation phase right now. But like by the time this podcast drops, yeah, check it out. You know, so it, it's it's more it's like just I'm just saying. I mean, I've been missaying their name for five or ten years, but I remember seeing they had this incredible documentary, I highly recommend this to anyone listening, that's about a democratic election in a Chinese elementary school that it's one of the best short films I've ever seen. It's about a half an hour long. I saw it on the whole pin documentary. It's now on Netflix. 
Put I, it in the show I've notes. Put, I've pushed people to it on, you know, wherever. It, the fact that I, I don't still have the, the DVD it came on in no way uh, denigrates my experience with it. So is it a conflict that there is such the, this, this sort of fetishization of, of the physical product? I don't think it's a conflict. I mean, I don't think I don't think it's a zero sum game in that way. I think I think like for reasons we've discussed throughout this conversation, yeah. there's value to valuing the physical object. Mm-hmm. That doesn't take away from your valuing of the, you know, the pure floating internet content. You know, yeah. I mean, I think both exist, you know, and I would be sad if the object side of it was gone forever. Yeah, uh, which it will never, you know. I mean, because I think the thing that a lot of those conversations about technology overlooks in some ways is that you know it's it's not like the internet is lacking objecthood. You know, there are, it's just a you know it's a different it's just a, a sort different. of a centralized object. Instead well, of no, I mean, there, yeah, or or yeah, or it just has multiplied the ways the objects that you can use to get at it. But there's still the Kindle Paperwhite or the iPad or the laptop or the yeah. your matrix dot matrix printer that you've hooked up to your wireless network. I know from knowing you a little bit that you're not like a print purist. Are you? Are you a? Are you a iPhone reader? I can't read on my iPhone partially because I have terrible vision. Yeah, and it's too small. Um, can you blow the text up really big though? Yeah, but then I'm like clicking like a forty times a second because it's just oh, like right. one word. Of, you know, I need yeah. to have a little bigger. They got the accessibility settings now on the iPad. You're, I yeah, that's I'm, great. I'm encouraging you to use it as a blind person, I guess. Right yeah, now, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, I am slowly going blind. You should put in the show notes. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, are you? Are you? I do have a degenerative retinal condition, and I so there, I, I, I cheer the accessibility functions. What What's the long term outlook on, on on your eyes? It varies. There is no treatment available for retinitis pigmentosa, but they're developing. So I think by the time I can't read anymore, which would be, you know, maybe in my mid sixties that there'll yeah. probably be like a sexy robot who will just read to me. I was gonna make a joke about getting a beautiful woman to come read to you, but you've already made the joke, but it's a robot. Yeah. So or, or my wife. Or your wife. So or I mean my son. do you do you foresee that? I mean is that something you consider in, in, in your planning? Going blind? Your eyes, yeah. Uh I mean I have, yeah. I. What do you mean? Am I planning? I mean, I mean, uh, you're involved in in print and and making uh, making things people can read. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing with me. Oh, so you're saying like, do I want to make sure that Tom Bissell will forever be available to visually impaired readers? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, and I think that I don't need to do anything specifically to McSweeney's or the Believer about right. that. You know, I think that you know, if I can email any text file I file I want to. Instapaper, you know, whatever, any of those services, and then have it be reformatted to any of the objects yeah. that I use to read it. That is kind of all I need as a blind person. Not, not, I'm not a blind person right now. But well, the other nice thing about my degenerative retinal condition is that it is eating from the outside in. So my central vision will be the last to go, and the central vision is the most fun part of your vision to read with. Yeah. So I think I will be like. Just eventually, just looking at a little pinhole through which I will be reading Mark Lehner well into my seventies. Does that make you interested? And in, is like podcasts kind of like spring from that? Yeah, I mean, I was always a radio. I mean, I like when I first heard This American Life in high school. 
it had nothing to do with my digit. I didn't even know yeah. I had that, and I was just into that form. And Joe Frank on KCRW. I mean, so so my interest in radio is unconnected, but it's it's nice. You know, I've thought about that, and it's, you know, it'll be nice if I ever do lose that little shred of pinhole in the center. I will be glad that Jad Abumrad is out there making great great narrative for me. That's as good a place to end as any. Awesome. This has been tremendously fun. Thank you very much for coming in, Andrew Leland. Um, All the stuff's in the show notes. I look forward to seeing what you do over the next decade. Likewise, your podcast is, uh, I should say, up until this episode, it's been a real treasure, but now you've really, you really lost I can, your game. And I can say the same of the organist, um, but without losing losing a step, I look forward to what you're doing. So uh, check out the organist, check out the believer. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Hey, that was the long form podcast. Uh, thanks very much to my guest, Andrew Leland. Thank you to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Lauren Kirchner, our intern, Gavin Jenkins. If you like this show, give it a rating on iTunes, leave a comment. Thank you again to our sponsors, Squarespace and Tiny Letter. We'll be back here next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.